Money FM 89.3, best of weekends. My guest today is Michael Cortillo, the host of BBC Great Railway Journeys, also the former UK Defence Secretary and a man uh, about the world, I would say. Michael, good morning. Welcome to Money FM Weekend Mornings. Great to be with you, Ken. Good morning. Oh, and you know, Michael, the, um, the series is amazing. Ten episodes, uh, they actually dropped here in February uh, in Singapore, and I've had a chance to look at a couple of them, especially that first one where you started off in Hong Kong. What was that like for you to be back there 20 plus years since you were last there for the handover? That's right. I was Defence Secretary just before the handover, so I was visiting uh, British troops. Well, it was uh, emotional because, um, of course, we recognised the inevitability of the handover to Hong Kong, but we had our anxieties about the handover of Hong Kong. And when I was filming there in 2019, the show is not, I must say, uh, principally politically, a uh, political show, but inevitably we were filming some of the demonstrations and reflecting on the tensions there. So uh, it was another moment of anxiety for me. And uh, of course, uh, things have taken a turn for the much worse uh, since then. But let me emphasize, in case people are getting the wrong impression, that the shows are mainly about history. So one of the things we were considering in Hong Kong was the British colonial history, uh, some of which I must say is pretty embarrassing from the British point of view. And I thought that was interesting. Like, as you just mentioned, you don't spend much time talking about modern day politics in, in any of the series that I saw. But it is interesting that you, you don't, you know, do the British government, the days of empire, any, uh, any favors, right? You, you pretty much call it the way it was from the opium wars to uh, whatever. Um, and and did that, that obviously felt right to you, right? To mix in that reality check on history. Yes, again, to explain to people who may not be familiar with the format, we're using an old guidebook. In this case, it's from 1913, which is, you know, right there at the, at the sort of zenith of the British colonial experience. You cannot unpick history, uh, the history of Hong Kong, the history of Singapore and of Malaysia, and also of Indonesia under the Dutch and of Vietnam under the French. They'd all be different if it hadn't been for those colonial experiences. But let's face it, some of those experiences were extremely negative, and some of them, I suppose you could argue, were positive. But certainly what I was trying to do, because I have the uh, training as an historian, was to you know, serve up the history as I saw it and as I believed that it was. And it is very difficult to justify the British position in the Opium Wars. We were essentially upset because the Chinese government wouldn't take opium from Britain. Britain wanted the opium to pay for its trade. Uh, and we were effectively trying to make addicts of the Chinese population. And we fought two wars with China on that basis. It's quite difficult to put a positive spin on that today. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And, and I know that, um, uh, well, I won't give any, any uh, spoilers or anything here, but uh, that one moment I will mention in, in Hong Kong, where you go up to Kat King Wai, the village up near in the New Territories, where that- yes. That, that gentleman there, Mr. Tang, I believe his name was, is a descendant of a thousand years of family history uh, in that little village. Um, you have done these shows all over you know, Europe and, and now through Asia. How does, that, how does that make you feel to be standing right there where you know, literally bricks have seen the history of the world go by in our, in our more recent history? 
Well, I suppose we Europeans uh, are used to going to the United States and to Canada, and I've made shows there, and feeling rather superior because we have this enormous uh, history. You know, we have yeah. our cathedrals and we can take you to Roman sites and so on. Sure. So actually, uh, you know, w when you're in uh, Hong Kong or China and you're looking at dynasties that stretch, stretch back over thousands of years, uh, that is quite a humbling experience. And I think the point I was trying to make there was that, uh, you know, all of us regard our present day as extraordinarily important. Mm -hmm. But actually, when you're standing somewhere where a thousand years of history has elapsed within a single family, you realize that even a lifetime is but a moment in the progress and the history of the world. And that's quite an interesting perspective to have. Yeah. Your moments um, stretch across this region in this series, uh, from Hong Kong to Chiang Mai and the River Kwai, obviously the, the tortured history of that place, uh, Bangkok, Ho Chi Minh City, Halong Bay, Jakarta, um, Yogyakarta, Penang, KL, and Singapore. As you look across Asia, and I know you've traveled this region before, but this particular time, did you see or feel anything different as it was a more recent version perhaps of some of the places that you've been to in years gone by? Well, yes, I think everywhere one feels the extraordinary Asian energy. Wherever we went, I was astonished by the amount of building, by the amount of traffic, the amount of enterprise. Uh, and I had a very strong feeling that the 21st century uh, belongs to Asia. I, I felt that in one place after another. I suppose, as it were, one of my missions in using my 1913 guidebook was to look at the contrast between most of the places that I have mentioned already, Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam, on the one hand, which all had the colonial experience, and Thailand on the other, which avoided the colonial experience. Uh, Thailand was, uh, was never conquered by a foreign power. And, and that I found uh, very, very interesting. And it, it, of course, the Thais were still very much influenced by the West. They felt that they had to modernize. For example, they felt they had to abolish slavery to come up to the standards of the West. Otherwise, there was a danger that they would be colonized. So the West still had a great influence upon Thailand. But I did find that uh, a fascinating contrast. I suppose the other very emotional feeling I had, because I'm in my, um, I suppose I'm now in my late 60s. So I remember the Vietnam War very well indeed. And I could never have dreamt when I was a youngster that I would one day be able to travel to Vietnam, that I would be received with smiles and a welcome, that I'd be able to travel from one side of Vietnam to the other on a single railway, which is called the Unification Railway. And all of that I found uh, very, very moving. Speaking with Michael Portillo, the host of BBC's Great Asian Railway Journeys here on Money FM's Weekend Mornings. Michael, as you mentioned that, that uh, amazing development that's been happening. And uh, of course, this has been a story around Asia for uh, 15, 20 years, um, but it has really picked up pace in, in more recent years. Uh, when you, do you think that the West gets that? And when you show them your series, you very much talk about the history of places as you rightly should, but you do bring in these modern day marvels for example, we think about the, the port here at Tuas uh, and, and the underground railway terminal here in Singapore uh, that you mentioned in, in the Singapore show. Uh, is this something that, that you think viewers and are now just finally kind of catching on to in places other than Asia? No, I very much doubt whether they are catching on to it. I think it's very hard to catch on to it unless you go there 
and see it with your own eyes. So, you know, even though I've read about all those things, or even though I have, as you said, traveled to Southeast Asia before, even so, I was astonished, you know, returning to Singapore after an interval of 10 or 15 years, the changes are so palpable. I mean, Singapore is probably the most extraordinary example because it went from being uh, really a very poor place after the Second World War uh, to having one of the highest uh, GDPs per head in the world today. And you see that obviously, therefore, in the living standards, in the conspicuous consumption, and you see it in the physical contours of the city. You see, I mean, for, for example, obviously I went to Raffles Hotel, which I believe stands on Beach Road, sure. uh, and Beach Road is now nowhere near the beach. Uh, that is a metaphor for the amount of land reclamation, the amount of building that has gone on. And I think it's extremely hard for people in the West, uh, I think it's extremely hard for people in the West to comprehend that. Yeah. One of the things I noticed about your series is that you do take these moments to just pause and be silent and, and let the natural sound of that particular scene that you're in really help to tell the story of what's going on there. I think you were in, um, in Hong Kong on Lantau Island. You did that in a little fishing village and uh, you did that in, around Singapore as well. And, and how important is that for you? I guess you have obviously phenomenal editors and camera people. Uh, but how important is that for you to let the, the moments within a given city and a given place tell the story for itself? Well, any city is much more eloquent than I am. Uh, any, any place that I go is more eloquent than a presenter can possibly be. So uh, yes, when I went to that village in Hong Kong, I was astonished because that wasn't my image of Hong Kong. Mm. And I really had to, as it were, let that breathe. I had to let people understand uh, what that was uh, like. You mentioned uh, the bridge over the River Kwai. Mm. I mean, of course, you know, visiting the cemeteries of Allied soldiers. Or for that matter, in Singapore, you know, talking about the uh, invasion of Singapore by Japan in yeah. 1942. These are, these are extraordinarily moving moments. And I think it's only appropriate to, to be silent and to reflect. And I want to tell you, you know, that, that, that isn't just something I'm doing for the camera. That's actually, you know, that's actually what's happening in my, in my mind. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and appropriately so, I think, obviously, to give, the, give those places, those special places, a moment of their own, right? To, uh, to uh, let them just be as they are. Um, let's talk about when you, when you did the series, because you, you, you do it with such humor and, and, and just such ease, at least to the observer. But what, is it, what is it like to go to so many cities, so many places, and, and have to be up every day, I'm assuming every day or every other day, uh, or filming multiple places each day? Um, your, your lime green pants and your salmon colored shirt really got a workout. Uh, I notice, uh, but uh, what is that like for you to keep up that energy and to, and to keep you know moving forward like that? Well, I think that comes uh, naturally to me, if I may say so. I mean, if mm -hmm. I'm in places which are energetic, I'm energetic myself. I mean, I, I love to work, and I'm very, very conscious of the privilege of of being able to work and to see all these places. And um, it isn't meant to be a holiday for me. It's meant to be a responsibility. By the way, I've become very much more aware of this even during the COVID epidemic because, you know, so many people have been locked in their homes and they've been writing to me and saying, you know, thanks to you, we are able to travel even when we're locked in our houses. But even before that, you know, there are so many people who through age or infirmity are unable to travel anymore. 
uh, and I have to take them with me. They have to travel with me vicariously. So um, I have that, I think, big responsibility to have the maximum amount of energy and enthusiasm. And I, I really don't think it's acceptable for me, as it were, to have a, a, a day off or a day where I, <laughs> where I can't be bothered. That's just, you know, that's not, not part of the deal. Yeah. Did you film the whole series in one go or did you do it in, in several different uh, segments? We did, it in, um, we did it in two goes. That is to say, I traveled from Europe to uh, Southeast Asia twice. So we did uh, two, two, two chunks. And um, let me see, I think we do f four or five days for each program, which is uh, nearly one hour in length. So yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a pace of activity. I mean, obviously, it's not just what I'm saying and what I'm doing. There's archival material to be fitted in there as well. So I don't have to generate, <clears throat> I don't have to generate all that screen time. But, but nonetheless, we move in television terms at quite a pace and all the better for that, I think. There's not a lot of time for retakes. It has the energy of a journey. It really is a journey. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's not so polished that it feels like you spent days and days working on one stand-up or one link. <laughs> well, I'll try and take that as a compliment. <laughs> well, no, no, and I absolutely mean that as a compliment. Okay, you know, okay. because you, you, see, you see certain times things are just so picture perfect and letter perfect that you know the hair is exactly the way it should be and the you know etc that that it loses that sense of reality right and and I, I don't you know part of your from my perspective part of your uh, your strength as a presenter in this is that you're willing to just be you in that moment if you've got sweat on your shirt because it's 100 degrees out 35 degrees out whatever you're okay with that and i think that makes a travel series that much more accessible to everybody it's funny you should mention that. In, in Hong Kong, I think we had the, uh, the hottest weather of all, and uh, I had four identical shirts. And it, <laughs> it, it, it amuses me that there's a scene where, you know, I'm absolutely dripping in one shot, and I go into a building, and suddenly my shirt is dry because I changed it. Yeah. So I, I pick up on these little bits of uh, continuity. But I have one viewer write to me and say, how disgusting. There you were in Hong Kong, sweating all the time, and you only had one shirt. No, actually, I was putting on a clean shirt about every two hours. <laughs> well, I tell you, I, I lived in Hong Kong and was a reporter there from 95 to 98. So I know it well. Uh, the heat and having to be out and try to look decent while you're filming something, it is not easy to do. But I think you did it. Uh, you did it very well. Uh, any favorite any favorite spots that, that stick out to you? Uh, I know it's kind of the standard question to ask, but, you know, because you did such a breadth of, of rural and urban landscapes, uh, across so many different cultures. I just wonder what, what really stuck, struck you as, as being very unique or very memorable. It really is a kind of invidious question because I, I, I enjoyed everything. Sure. But I think somewhere we've hardly mentioned at all yet, uh, when I got to Surabaya in hmm. Indonesia, I thought this is interesting because here is a city that is, it seems, scarcely touched by the tourist. I thought here is a city that is scarcely touched by the tourist. Here is a city that is, you know, absolutely, it seems to me, uh, genuine and authentic. And this is uh, a very real privilege to see a city in that state. You know, this is not a city that is covered in skyscrapers. It's not full of Western influences. So I found that very special indeed. Yeah, and yet the growth there, I've been to Surabaya, I was there about a year and a half ago. Uh, the growth there and the energy, like you say, is just, it's, it's moving. They are, they're getting stuff done there, but it's getting done in a way that's, very much feels like maybe 40 years ago. 
Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to have your endorsement that, uh, that I thought it was a special place, but no, but of course the energy of Southeast Asia is to be felt in every corner as far as I could perceive. Yeah, Michael, you know, it's interesting to me reading through your background uh, that, uh, that you were early, early on in your, in your political career uh, that you were actually involved in the transport ministry, uh, that, that you were, uh, uh, I believe, was transport minister, is that correct? I was. I was the transport minister and I had special responsibility for trains. <laughs> and that would be all the way back in 1988 to 1990. Um, is, there, is there some irony there or, or is it just as it should be? <laughs> well, you're doing I now? don't know whether there's irony. I, I, I think it helped me to, uh, as it were, qualify to do the job. Because although I'm not uh, a train spotter by background, I was born in the age of steam locomotives still operating on main lines in Britain, but I was never a sort of train spotter. But at least I had had two years where trains have been one of my uh, important focuses. Uh, and actually, every now and again, it does turn out to be uh, quite helpful because there are certain terms in the railway world like catenary. Do you know what catenary is? I, I do the, not. It's the overhead wires. So, you know, if you say catenary, people nod their heads and they say, ah, Here's a man who knows his railways. He knows the word catenary. <laughs> Gives you that much more credibility, I guess. Uh, yes. we're, speaking, we're speaking with Michael Portillo, the great Asian railway journeys host uh, for the BBC uh, that is available right now on BBC Earth, Starhub Channel 407. Uh, Michael, you talked a bit earlier about the last year of the pandemic. And obviously many people were not traveling nearly as much. Certainly people in Asia were very much locked down. I know Europeans traveled uh, perhaps a bit more uh, with some exceptions, uh, but to have a series like this come out now, um, and, and now that people are really hungry for travel themselves if they're not traveling, uh, how do you feel about, about this moment having this series available for people? Well, I feel it is um, a responsibility and a privilege because um, yeah, for a lot of people, the only opportunity they have to see different places is through their television screen. So I very much hope that they're going to come with me on this journey. I hope they're going to enjoy it. I hope they're going to feel that it's energetic. I hope they're going to understand something about history that they didn't understand before, because that was certainly my experience. And I guess finally, Michael, you've done the, the great British railway journeys. You've done the great continental railway journeys, uh, Indian journeys, Alaskan journeys, Canadian journeys, Australian journeys now Asia. What's, what's next? Are there any journeys left? There certainly are. I mean, we have not done, for example, China and Japan. Mm. So I would, I would love to be able to do uh, China and Japan. I would, of course, very much have liked to have done uh, Myanmar, but Myanmar maybe is now off the list. But let's hope that China and Japan lie before us. Oh, those two will be amazing. All the fast trains and the, and the beautiful technology that they have there. Uh, that, that will be fun to watch uh, as and when you get to that. Michael Portillo, thank you so much for your time today. The host of Great Asian Railway Journeys, available on BBC Earth, Starhub Channel 407. Really appreciate your time, Michael, and, and happy travels to you. Glenn, thank you so much for this opportunity. Bye-bye. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SBH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.